Well, once again, we return to the Gospel of Luke. And once again, we return to Luke chapter 22. We'll be looking this morning at verses 54 through 62. Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You're one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also is with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Father, it's my prayer this morning that as we examine this passage, we will not do so in order to accuse Peter, but to see how much of Peter is in us. Reveal ourselves to us today. This we ask in the name of our Savior. Amen. As we know very well from our reading of scripture, we are taught our faith, we are taught about the Christian life in many different ways. There are passages of straightforward explanation, something we might find in Deuteronomy or Romans. Then those same truths are turned into prayers and hymns such as we find in the Psalms, or into sermons, like we find in the prophets. But that same faith and that same life are likewise taught in the history of God's people, in the narrative sections of Scripture. We see this taught in regard to God's people as a corporate entity and also God's people as individuals. That's why there's so much narrative in the Bible, unlike, for instance, the Koran. God is sovereign. He works out his will in the experience of life. Even everyday events teach us that truth, even more so when those events become turning points in redemptive history. And so it is with 
something like temptation. There is almost nothing a human being will not do, however bad, however harmful, however ugly, if only enough inducements are offered to him. It's part of being a fallen creature. One of the great mistakes of our modern public life is our unwillingness any longer to talk about the reality of temptation and its destructive effects. We heard a great deal about shame earlier, and that's the same situation, isn't it? Nobody wants to talk about shame. Shame is, is looked upon as something that is evil in and of itself. When shame is something that God has implanted within his creatures to help us, to save us. The Bible comes and the Bible shows us men and women as they face shame and as they face temptation. Some successfully, others not so much. Some pass the test, some fail the test. We see Joseph in Potiphar's house. We see David with Bathsheba. And we see Peter here in our passage this morning in the courtyard of the high priest. Close enough to Jesus that Jesus could look at him. And he succumbs to the temptations, to the inducements which the evil one presents to him. The best way to defeat temptation is to never give it a foothold. Had Peter only had his wits about him and realized what he was being tempted to do, if he had answered that first girl's question with, yes, I'm honored to have been his disciple for the last three years, he would not have finished the night in an agony of shame and self-recrimination. He would not have gone out and wept bitterly. But a lesson in resisting temptation is hardly all that we have here. The Peter's humiliation is recorded here, tells us something else. His humiliation is not recorded here in order that Peter would be shamed down through history. Rather, we're given this account so that we might learn from Peter's failures as well as Peter's successes. And he did have some successes eventually, right? Peter preaches that first sermon at Pentecost and thousands come to faith in Christ. Peter preaches another sermon right after that and thousands more come to faith in Christ. I can't help wondering how Peter was feeling after that. This how it's going to be every time I preach? <laughs> well, it wasn't. But Peter did well. He also failed. Even after this. Well, we want to look at this passage this morning and see what other lessons we can draw out of it. 
They're not all about temptation and how to deal with it and resist it. There are some other things that we need to see here. In fact, here in Peter's fall and failure, we're given a miniature theology of the Christian life. And I think it comes in at least three parts here. First, Peter's fall takes its place in the history of salvation as another demonstration that salvation is by grace. It is entirely a gift, a gift of God to those who are entirely undeserving. Have you ever noticed the interesting fact that every time the Lord renews his covenant with his people, they almost immediately break that covenant again? Every time the Lord extends his grace to his people, In one way or another, they betray him again. The covenant had no sooner been made with Noah and his family than Ham violated the sacred obligations of a son and dishonored his father and sinned against God. No sooner had the Lord made his great promise to Abraham that all the world would be blessed through him. Then Abraham left the promised land, went down to Egypt, and lied about Sarah. The result of which was that his wife was placed in Pharaoh's harem. Thus, from a human perspective, throwing the entire plan of God to save the world through Abraham and Sarah into jeopardy. Yahweh was in the very act of making a covenant with his people at Sinai, with Moses having ascended to the summit of Sinai to receive the law, when the Israelites were down below at the foot of the mountain, making up a golden calf, worshiping an idol. The Lord had no sooner made his covenant with David that there should never fail to be a king sitting on his throne when David took another man's wife and murdered her husband. Same thing happened again in Elijah and Elisha's time, in the times of King Hezekiah and Josiah, and again after the exile as we read in Haggai and Malachi. And now in that same historical sequence, in that same unfolding of God's redemptive plan, we have Peter's betrayal. The covenant had been renewed just a few hours before in the upper room. And the events that were to take the Lord Jesus to the cross for the sins of his people had been set in motion. And now, just a few hours later, Peter is lying, cursing, denying that he had ever even met this Jesus of Nazareth. Peter's betrayal is the more despicable for the timing of it. But it's also the more significant for the same reason. Peter is here following in the footsteps of God's covenant people back to the beginning, profoundly violating and betraying the salvation of God, even at the very moment it's being revealed. And yet in all those cases, and in this case, the Lord remains faithful to his covenant 
Because it is his covenant. And it is an unconditional covenant. God keeps his promises even when we don't. God is faithful when we are not. And this is one of the great lessons we learn from Peter's failure. The grace of God saves us no matter our failures or betrayals. His promise to save us stands not because of our faithfulness, but in spite of our faithfulness. Praise God for that, because without it, we have no hope. Without it, we are doomed. Salvation, eternal life, is God's gift to us. And the proof of that is that we not only have not earned it, we cannot earn it. Quite the contrary. Even as that gift is being placed in our hands and in our hearts, we are finding ways to dishonor it and to betray the one who gives it. Peter has more to teach us. Peter's fall is another great demonstration of the nature of the Christian life as one of ongoing repentance and forgiveness. It's not the case that Christians are forgiven once at the beginning when they first place their trust in Christ. The new heart that Christ gives to those who trust in him compels men and women to live a new kind of life, but the remnants of the old life still afflict us. They conspire to prevent us from living the kind of life that we want to. This is what Paul speaks about in Romans 7. The thing that afflicted the Apostle Paul was that he didn't do the things he wanted to do. And he did the things he didn't want to do. And this was an ongoing battle within him. And it's not just Paul, it's every one of us. We are constantly living with this tension. There is that new man. We are new creatures in Christ. We have been changed. We love God. We desire to serve him. We desire to please him. But we're not yet at that point where the flesh no longer has a hold on us. We're constantly struggling. And the flesh is constantly reaching up and grabbing us and trying to drag us back to what we were. When we want to keep going on to what we will be. And that battle is constant. And so it's that... So it is that the the, the faith and the repentance with which we begin as Christians must be practiced day after day after day until our dying day. And we deal with the Lord about our sins not just once, but times without number. The forgiveness we were granted once is granted again and again and again. We confess our sin and he is righteous. 
He is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And John, the apostle, writes that not to unbelievers, but to believers. He writes that to the church. He's saying, brothers and sisters, this is the kind of life that we live. From the time we first come to faith in Christ, from the time we recognize the sinfulness of our sin, and we lay it at the foot of the cross and we trust in Christ, from that point on, our lives are one unbroken chain of confession. Because our lives are going to continue to be an unbroken chain of sin. Coming to Christ doesn't change that. God's working in us. He's changing us. He's sanctifying us. He's making us more like Christ. So as we move on in our life with him, things are going to change. We're going to hate our sin more than we used to. We're going to recognize our sin in ways that we never recognized before. But sin is always going to be a part of us until we draw our last breath. And because that is true, the need for repentance and confession is also a reality that stays with us. But praise God, it's not only repentance and confession. It's also reconciliation with God because he forgives always. There has never been a time when one of his children has come to him in confession and God has said, I'm tired of listening to you. Go away. Never. His response is always good. It's forgiven. Let's move on. Because when he forgives, he takes our sin and throws it as far as the east is from the west. Our justification may be a once and for all experience. But that results in the ongoing work of repentance throughout our life. Peter's bitter tears after he realized what he had done are the demonstration of this reality. This is the distinction to be made between the betrayal of Judas and the betrayal of Peter. Judas betrays his Lord. He ends up in suicide. He ends up with remorse, but not repentance. Peter, because Peter is a new creation, he goes a different route. He recognizes what he has done. He hates what he has done. He weeps bitterly over what he has done. And then he returns to the Lord. Judas runs for the rope. Peter runs to Christ. And he is received. Remember that great scene after the resurrection of Christ? And some of the disciples go back to their boats and they're out fishing. 
And there the resurrected Christ is on the shore. And everybody else, they're trying to get in the tents, they want the, 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 the nets rather. They want to get to the shore, they want to see Christ. Peter doesn't even wait for any of that. He jumps in and swims. Because Peter knew he's going to be received. He's not going to be rejected. He knew that Christ loved him. In spite of his betrayal. In spite of his sin. Peter's weeping. Reveal his heart. This is to be. The revelation of our hearts. Every day. I sin. And I grieve over my sin, and then I take it to Jesus, and he forgives me. And he never speaks of it again, which is not what we do. We're always bringing it up again. Because that's how so often we want to deal with one another. Somebody sins against me, I'll mouth the words of forgiveness, but don't expect me to act on it. Or I sin against myself and against the Lord. And I won't let it go. Lord, I did it again. Surely, Lord, you don't want to hear this again. But he does. He does. He wants to hear it again. As we come to him with a broken heart, he wants to hear it again. Because he wants to forgive us again. And so often we're the problem. We don't want to accept forgiveness. We want to beat ourselves up. That's not what he wants. As far as the east is from the west, how far is that? You don't come around again. It's gone. It's done. Now, We do not have the account of Peter's ultimate forgiveness being extended here, to be sure. But we have the account of his sorrow. And for any reader of the Bible, those tears hold promise of both Peter's forgiveness and his restoration. We know from other places that Peter certainly is forgiven and he is restored. Luke chapter 24 and verse 34 We read this. The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. That's forgiveness. That's restoration. We know from the end of the Gospel of John that there was a point at which the risen Lord took Peter aside, spoke to him alone, And restored him. Not only forgave him his sin, but restored him to ministry. Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Peter was not excluded because of his his sin. His sin was forgiven, and Peter went on to do great things in the kingdom. 
The Lord knew very well that it would be difficult for Peter to face him again when the last time they had seen one another had been during Peter's oath-filled tirade in the courtyard of the high priest. And so, eventually, Jesus takes Peter aside and forgives him and restores him personally. And that... Brothers and sisters, is the Christian life. It is everyone's Christian life. Paul said that it was his, and it was, and we see it to have been Peter's. Our sin, God's forgiveness, our failures, the Lord's restoration. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not simply knowing about Christ and what he did. And counting on his cross for our salvation. That's just the beginning. It's receiving the forgiveness of our sin and the cleansing of our heart daily. Augustine in his great work, The City of God, says that Peter was in a healthier condition when he was weeping bitterly at the end of his betrayal than he was when he had so proudly promised his undying and unshakable loyalty to the Lord. Think about that. When you are broken and weeping bitter tears, that evidences a healthy spiritual condition. As painful as it is, that is what Christians do. This is who we are. Those who love God and understand that when we sin, we offend the one that we love and we break down in tears. It is the one who knows no sorrow for sin. The one who can shed no tears over sin. They are the one ones who are in a dangerous spiritual condition. The Christian life is at its bottom and most essentially the daily experience of our dependence upon the grace and forgiveness of God. Richard Hooker, great 17th century theologian, imagined asking Peter about all of this. He thought Peter would say something like this. My eager protestations made in the glory of my ghostly strength I am ashamed of. Referring, of course, to Peter saying, I'll never leave you. I'll die with you, Jesus. Hooker imagines Peter saying, that I'm ashamed of. But those those crystal tears wherewith my sin and weakness was bewailed, have procured my endless joy. My strength hath been my ruin, but my fall has been my salvation. He went out and and, and wept bitterly. And yet, in Hooker's imagining, considered those bitter tears to be his endless joy. Alexander White 
puts this very beautifully. He said, we are always returning home from the far country. We are always saying, Father, I have again sinned. And our Father is always saying over us, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. That's the Christian life. That's our life, brothers and sisters. But we're not yet done with what Peter has to tell us about these lives of ours. The fact that we continue to sin and continue to receive God's forgiveness might lead someone to think that since Christ will forgive my sin and since I can't stop sinning, I might as well relax and live as I please. Sin so that grace might abound. I might as well not beat myself up over failing to do what I ought to do or for getting tired of attempting the very difficult thing of living a truly godly life. Peter shows us that There is no place for that kind of thinking in the mind of a child of God. Peter's fall is a reminder to us of our summons to live a righteous life to the glory of God. It's obviously a matter of some importance and one we are not to overlook that shortly before Peter betrayed the Lord, shortly before he took counsel of his fears and did what he had promised the Lord that very night he would never do, the Lord had told him, watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. Luke shortened that statement somewhat in verse 40. When he arrived at that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. But the point is the same. The Lord had warned his disciples. He had told them of the danger. And Peter, just moments later, forgot the Lord's warning, neglected his counsel, and fell flat. Now consider this. We spoke last week of the advantages that Judas had as one of the Lord's inner circle. Judas had those advantages of being one of the twelve. Peter had all those advantages and more. In addition to his being with the Lord as he taught, as he healed the sick, as he drove demons out of those who were possessed, as he walked on the water and stilled the storm, Peter himself had walked on water. He was one of three men who saw the Lord transfigured in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard God's voice speak from heaven. He knew Christ's power. Peter himself had been the first to confess that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God. But there's more. What really was the threat to Peter this night? Suppose he had admitted to knowing Jesus even to being his disciple. Suppose he had gone further and said to those who had gathered around the fire, let me tell you about this man and why I revere him so. What would have happened to Peter? 
maybe some ridicule. We don't even know that that would have happened. For all we know, some of those people there around the fire might have listened to him. The servant girl must have seen the Lord and heard him. Otherwise, how would she have known that Peter was one of his disciples? Perhaps if Peter had simply acknowledged his association with Jesus, the rest of the night would have been spent explaining who Jesus is. And what he had come to do. Peter had been told that. He could have told them what he had seen the Lord do. And what he had heard the Lord say. Certainly doesn't appear that Peter's life was in danger. The most he might lose would be some of his reputation in the eyes of people. Whose opinion shouldn't have mattered to him anyway. He was a Galilean after all. Nobody thought very much of a Galilean, particularly a Judean. So no matter his privileges and no matter the absence of any real danger, Peter betrayed the Lord for reasons he probably would have been hard-pressed to explain to himself later. At least once he began to think about what he had done and why. Perhaps this is why we refer to This as falling into temptation. We hardly even know what we're doing or why we're doing it. Peter's knowledge of the Lord, his experience of the divine majesty, even these things were insufficient to keep him from this act of terrible personal betrayal. It's phenomenal how weak the human will can be where temptation is concerned. Obviously, there is a warning for us here. If Peter should fall, despite all of his advantages, how easy must it be for Christians who do not have such advantages to fall likewise? No wonder we're so often reminded in Scripture to be alert, be ready, be determined. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Peter would stumble again, just as we all do. We have the record of one of his later stumbles in the epistle to the Galatians, where Paul writes of this conflict that he had with Peter. As Peter is there in the church of Antioch and Judaizers come in. And once again, for fear of man, Peter withdrew himself from table fellowship with the Gentile brothers. Peter would not go out and weep bitterly and then immediately become a completely changed man. Even after he is transformed from a disciple to an apostle, even after he preaches his Pentecost sermon and sees thousands come to faith in Christ, even after he preaches another sermon in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, and thousands more come to faith in Christ, even after he finds himself imprisoned, And then released. 
Even after Peter goes to Cornelius and preaches the gospel and sees the first Gentiles come to faith in Christ. Even after Peter stands up at the Jerusalem council and proclaims the gospel of grace and declares that Gentiles don't need to come under the law. They don't need to be circumcised. They're saved by grace through faith alone. Even after all of that, Peter falls again. Denying the things that he has already proclaimed. There's an apocryphal book entitled The Acts of Peter. It's a document scholars date to the end of the second century, so more than a second, more than a century after Peter's death. It's a document which is just full of unreliable history. But it is there that we find the first mention of the famous legend which has been given the title Quo Vetus. According to legend, Peter had been preaching in Rome in the mid-60s of the first century. That is, during the time of persecution under the emperor Nero. And the intensifying persecution had made the city of Rome unsafe for him. And you then read in this account that the believers there in Rome urged him to flee so that he could continue his ministry elsewhere. Peter reluctantly agrees. But as he's leaving the city, the legend goes, and I stress this is not true, this is a legend. As he's leaving the city, he meets the Lord Jesus entering the city. And he asks the Lord, as you would expect. Hi, Jesus. Haven't seen you in a while. Where are you going? In Latin, where are you going is quo vadis. Jesus replied that he was going to Rome to be crucified. The idea being, since Peter was unwilling to be crucified for Jesus the Lord would have to be crucified for him once again. Peter, coming to his senses, returns to the city and soon thereafter was crucified himself, upside down at his own request, for he found himself unworthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus had been. Now the story is complete fantasy, and the theology of it is more than a little problematic. But it's worth pointing out that the legend, no doubt unintentionally, demeans Peter. It assumes that at the end of his life, he would still be inclined to do the cowardly thing. The evidence suggests just the opposite. That Peter met his death with great faithfulness. He had fallen on that terrible night long before he had betrayed the Lord, but he had never accepted his behavior as somehow excusable. He had never tried to rationalize it, which is what that story does. Get out of Dodge, Peter. You can have a more fruitful ministry yet for many years. Don't sacrifice yourself. Run away. Peter 
the real Peter, doesn't excuse himself. He never thought that because he was eventually forgiven for sin, that it didn't matter that he had committed it in the first place. His bitter tears were evidence of that. So was his insistence that the account of his betrayal be introduced into the Gospel of Mark. Now, almost everybody in the world of biblical scholarship believes that Peter was the source behind the Gospel of Mark. Peter and Mark traveled together, and much of what we find in Mark leads to that conclusion. If that is true, then there's something very interesting going on. Because Mark doesn't hesitate to name Peter. To include Peter's story of failure in the gospel. And if Peter was the source behind Mark, then you can just kind of imagine. I can, you know, I, I picture these things. This is what I do when I'm reading through the text. I picture Mark sitting there writing the gospel with Peter in the room with him. And Mark saying, because he loves Peter, right? Mark said, well, we'll skip over this part. And Peter saying, don't you dare write every word. I am grateful that Peter's story is included here because Peter's story is my story and Peter's story is your story. I am like Peter in his inexcusable weakness and so are you. There is no use denying it. But I also want to be like Peter when he goes out and weeps bitterly over his sin and yet doesn't allow it to crush him. He is restored and he goes on in faltering faithfulness, but faithfulness nonetheless. If I must have his sin as I must, I want his bitter tears as well. And I want his forgiveness as well. And I want his life growing in holiness to the end. And then I want his end. The end that God has ordained for me. I hope that's what you want as well. May God make it so. Father, thank you. Father, it is so easy to look at Peter and ask, how can he do that? But Father, we can only ask that question if we do not know ourselves at all. He can do that in the same way we can do it. And yet, Father, because we are in Christ, our betrayal, our sin is not the end. Our bitter tears are not the end. 
forgiveness, grace. That is the end. The end which will lead us to our end, however you determine that end should be. Until we come to the true and final end of our eternity dwelling with you in glory. Father, cause us to hate our sin. And cause us never to underestimate your grace. For Christ's sake, amen. Stand with me if you would.